Yeah, real people, real stories, this is what we know well Yeah, this is our truth today with Farron DeBell Time to get it started quick, not just here for gossiping Everything from entertainment, even talking politics This for everybody, at the gym or working steady For your sister, brother, rabbi, even for your granny Our truth today, trust, you don't wanna miss it Real people, real stories, come through and take a listen Yeah, follow on IG at our truth today Yeah so American President Donald Trump claims on several occasions to have won 52% of women voters in the 2016 election, in which he defeated his female opponent, Hillary Clinton. PolitiFact points out that this claim is misleading and that Trump actually received 52% of white women's vote, according to exit polls. Only 4% of black women and 25% of Latina women voted for the president. A Pew Research study on the topic concluded that Trump received 39% of the total women's vote and 47% of white women. In any estimation, nearly half of American white women who voted, voted for Donald Trump. Some wonder how a man with this rhetoric and action prior to the election could persuade so many white women to vote for him. So we're here today with Dr. Stephanie McCullough, a white progressive, to talk about white women voters. Welcome, Dr. McCullough. Thank you. So we were just talking, we're, we're, we're here uh, at a wonderful restaurant on the north side of Chicago, uh, outside in this sweltering heat, and we were just talking about the psychology of conservatism and liberalism. What do we know about the psychology of what makes someone liberal or conservative? There are some very neuroscientific findings speaking to that and some consistent studies about that. And I don't know that these studies are actually gender differentiated. It has a lot to do with how the person is experiencing a sense of threat. Studies of neuroscience indicate that there are some definitely definable differences between how a person who counts themselves as being conservative is literally taking in data about the world around them, how they are literally scanning the world with their eyes, how they are literally feeling a fight or flight experience, and when they feel aversiveness. This one study, and I was looking at it from Bobby Azarian, neuroscientist, where they look at throwing images in front of these participants of, that are maybe a little bit gross, like an open sore or something a little bloody or something medical. And the people that report themselves as being conservative look away faster. They have an aversiveness to it. The people that report being more progressive can a higher tolerance of looking at something that, you know, might appear roughly kind of gross. This, this consistent aversiveness to things that are feeling threatening is, is truly coming along the line. And for, so what feels threatening for a white woman? My experience for the white women who voted for Trump is that they may not be consciously aware of it, but I think they're voting for whiteness. Or they were voting for that sense of what is virtuous, what is, what is hierarchy, what has orderliness, what, is, what reads sort of authoritarian to me. What is it about the GOP that makes them not feel threatened? They're not threatened by it. Or what is it about Hillary that makes Hillary read anti-woman? If you're prone to want to live in a world of, of order and hierarchy, if you want to feel, if you need to feel a little more protected from adversity, well, you know, white feminists found feminism as a means to get themselves closer to the white male's power, right? They didn't initially build feminism to help lift up all women. It was, it was to get white women to get, uh, to leverage themselves a little closer to their male counterparts. And anything that doesn't fit in that feels like it's a threat to the American dream. That the American dream is orderly and it is non-threatening. GOP doesn't strike them as threatening. 
women who were white feminists who did find themselves that they actually started to progress a little farther along the line, you know, like they, they have a job now, they, they may have an income, they're now, now they're now contributing to the family and their role isn't just homemaker. While they're doing that, they are aware that they may be feeling some guilt that there are some white dudes that are being a little left behind. And there's virtue. It's almost like there's some honor in being able to still have that sympathy for those guys. Let those boys be boys. It's almost like a guilt reflex. Okay, so feminism may have given me the right to vote, and so I'm now m leveraging more equality to my male counterparts, my white male counterparts. But, listen, I'm not gonna be a threat, right? <laughs> like, how dare I be a threat to my male, white male counterparts? And Hillary Clinton is a big threat. It's voting for your, your, your father figure, and it's, and it's saying no to that woman, that white woman who is looking at progress and her definition of progress is dismantling what the American dream had always been about as a hierarchical white supremacist institution. And I think this argument that they keep, that we keep, that they love yelling, lock her up to Hillary Clinton long before any of, like long after there's proof that there's nothing to lock her up over. But what does locking up someone mean to white supremacist society? It means you are ours. It means we can remove you from society. We can take you out of the picture. We want to remove you from our culture and from having any influence on us. Well, what is that? Like, that's, that's the whole basis of our industrial prison system, is removing the, un, the, un, the undesirables who are disrupting the system. So it's very personal for them. In fact, they can't not make it personal. Like I was saying about, um, like I was telling you previously about uh, even talking to someone, another psychologist who still somehow has a very personal reaction, can't talk about the system of oppression and talk about how they benefit from it without immediately feeling like we're talking about them. As soon as they feel that way, that's when we get the, those comments. <laughs> that's, when, that's when Ian moderates those comments of that, that are entirely personalized um, and they can't hear the receiver, the, the, the receiver of the information can't hear it because they can't detach them who they are. And is that an unconscious guilt? I totally believe. Like, that's, I think that is absolutely unconscious guilt. I think it is too much it is too threatening to imagine that you have contributed to something. Because, I mean, maybe at the core, they don't want to think that they are hurting other people. They don't want to believe that, they're, that, that they are the reason for other people's pain. So at the core, to tell me that I am contributing to it might actually really hurt my feelings. So I'm going to look at all these people who do things I would never do and who took advantage of stuff I would never take advantage of and who don't have the morals that I have, and I'm going to put the blame on them and just dis disassociate, disconnect myself from being even part of the system. So we've been talking about racism that might be part of this, but let's talk about the patriarchy piece. I believe it was Susan G. Cole, and she said, quote, the extent to which women's minds and bodies are colonized by patriarchy should never be underestimated. Trump didn't win because Hillary Clinton was one of the most hated women in America. He won because a significant chunk of America hates women. Yeah. Now, I do need to point out that uh, while only 43% of white women voted for Hillary, 82%, nearly double, of black men voted for her. So it wasn't that America hates women thing in this case. Maybe just white American women, women. hate women. Right. So, right. And then with some other statistics, looking at other races, two Republican state races, uh, Florida governor, 47% of white women voted for the black male candidate, Andrew Gillum. And down the road in Georgia, only 25% of white women would vote for the black female candidate, Stacey Abrams. Right. Any thoughts on that? We still very much are a, a rape culture, and there is still a, a, a totally embracing of the objectifying of women, that when a woman, that she is the one susceptible and responsible for the, their, 
her own sexualization, right? So she's responsible for it. She's the owner and the keeper of, of what, is, what is to be happening to her from a sexual perspective. I mean, that's when they go, well, it's a porn star. <laughs> you know, like, she's a porn star. Um, it's the porn star's fault. <laughs> that, I mean, boys are just being boys. I think I think she's got a really salient point about that, and it's deeply internalized for women to to again to take on full ownership and 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 take carry the burden of their own of them fitting into the patriarchy um, and not not rising and not resisting it. I mean, she, you know, women very willfully put themselves in those positions. Very, women very willfully play out their own suppression, their own op oppression. They do it sexually. They do it. Uh, they do it as a means to get through society. <laughs> they do it to get tips uh, at, at the bar they work at, and and they and so they embrace that component of society instead of instead of resisting it. There were two articles that seemed to. Uh, one conservative and one liberal that seemed to agree with each other. Uh, it was Elise Hogue who wrote in Democracy Journal. She said that women report actually having a gut instinct that voting for their family's security might mean voting for a particular candidate, but then having that instinct undercut by white men in their lives, husbands, fathers, uncles, and bosses. White women are inextricably linked to social networks that vote against their interests of their families. Right. And then Carrie Lucas in the Conservative National Review wrote that white women, quote, may object to what seems the left's dehumanizing hostility to straight white men, Christians, and other women who hold contrary opinions. We think that animus toward these groups is as wrong as it would be to any other group, and we want all people treated respectfully as individuals. So it seems like, on one hand, we're saying you know women are trying to protect their men, and then Carrie Lucas seems to be echoing that. Yeah, we're kind of pissed off that you're talking about our straight white male Christians. Uh, and you're attacking them. Yeah. And notice that it says we want all people treated respectfully. It does not say equally. So if I'm saying I need to respectfully tell you you're, that you're taking up too much of the, uh, that I need more equality, which, which one are we going to give here, right? Yeah. She, did not, she said respectfully. I thought that was very important. But this is what I feel is going on with um, Carrie's point. But what I'm reading in that, that backlash of like, look at how, you're shame, how the left shame women what I'm reading in sentence after sentence is uh, what I'm going to call an appropriation of the narrative of oppression. I feel like they've appropriate, there's an appropriation. So instead of acknowledging that there's any privilege, instead the narration is we are the ones that are being uh, excluded. We don't have, an, uh, media is too far left and we don't have our voice. Well. That's, what is that? Like, wh where did we de develop this whole idea of, like, these vehicles are only being done by the liberals? So I feel like they've really, there's this, like, appropriated language now of oppression that's, been, that's being indoctrinated yeah. by, by, in this weirdo way that they feel they're being silenced. So not well, only she talks about having to go out and, and find information about the right and that it's not readily available. That's right. And we have to uh, dig, and nobody's going to give it to us freely uh my right linging my right winging family members seem to be able to have plenty of time grabbing onto you know material they seem to have full access to things yeah. i feel like she, there's a hyperbole there that, that i feel like she's blowing that up a little bit to make her point it's almost like they're almost verging on there is reverse prejudice happening right. that's where it's going that's where that narrative is going and i thought 
it just strikes me that that is an appropriated narrative, and I don't think that is a realistic one. I don't think the data proves that out to be the case either. I think what you want virtue, what virtue means to you in your home and what virtue means in public sphere, yes, it's changed. My, even my most liberal 75-year-old therapist says, things are changing way too fast. <laughs> Right? She's a white woman from Maine, and she just says, it's just going too fast. Yeah, it's changing. I go down the path of, like, that this has been a long, there's been a long trajectory effort on the part of what's the GOP right now. This has been a long con for them. Um, and they've been putting together on a legislative level what they call Project Blitz. And it is absolutely the definition of maintaining this country as being a white Christian country. If you look up Project Blitz, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Uh, their material is not. You're going to say that they're that they're being oppressed. <laughs> their whole agenda and is is and they've been they send out like every year they're updating what their legislative goals are. Their legislative goals are to infiltrate. Uh, like they are not. They don't want the separation of church and state. They want church more in state. And there's a dedicated group of white women now pushing hard already for Trump's reelection. Don Jr.'s wife, Laura Trump, led a group Tuesday that kicked off uh, the Women for Trump initiative in Pennsylvania, where Laura spoke to around a thousand mostly white women who cheered for the president. Laura, you might remember, is the one who introduced the president at his rally in North Carolina this week. We all heard the Trump followers yell, send her back, when Trump brought up what he considered to be the un-American brown congresswoman, uh, Ilhan Omar from Minnesota. But the part that didn't make much of the news was Laura's introduction. So let's take a listen. Think about what is on the other side that is being offered behind their de facto leader, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? What is it that they're offering the country? Let's, let's think about it. Open borders, abolishing ICE, disrespecting our flag, calling our country garbage. Who can forget 40-week abortions and infanticide? Full government control of every aspect of your life, also known as socialism, ladies and gentlemen. It's very scary. But as our president said, America will never be a socialist country, ladies and gentlemen. That's not how we roll in the United States of America. That's not how we do it. We respect the sanctity of life and we love our country. And guess what? If you don't love our country, the president said it. You can leave. Right? We don't need you. It's okay. Later when the president spoke about Congresswoman Omar, the crowd chanted, send her back. Dr. McCullough, what were you thinking when you heard this story or when you saw what some called the racist tweets from the president? I, I think he's exactly what he's always said he was. For me as a white woman who leans very progressive, I am the, I am the cliche white middle-class woman with an education who saw this talking about racism and talking about inequality as an intellectual exercise and a philosophical one and and now it's very 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 clear it was it's 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 in life it is emboldened and when when we when we when he was first held president i remember being going like this is just people were like this is just going to make other people really emboldened and i thought what is that what does that mean like no one's been a jerk to me so far Ah, I get it now. I get it now. I can have white people now say things that are so incredibly racist and offensive and they don't have a, a shameful bone in their body about it because the person with the highest office 
uh, is validating their worldview. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll hear book talk, the news, and more on white women voters from one of them, Dr. Stephanie McCulloch. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wound, sir? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her walk miles a day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org. Books are sometimes windows, offering views of worlds that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. These windows are sliding glass doors, and readers only have to walk through an imagination to become part of whatever world has been created or recreated by the author. When lighting conditions are just right, however, a window can also be a mirror. Literature transforms human experience and reflects it back to us. And in that reflection, we can see our own lives and experiences as part of the larger human experience. Reading then becomes a means of self-affirmation and readers often seek their mirrors in books. I'm Megan Rose and you're listening to Book Talk on Our Truth Today. This week, I'm reviewing three young adult novels Monday's Not Coming by Tiffany D. Jackson, Dear Martin by Nick Stone, and Long Way Down by Jason Reynolds. Monday's Not Coming, Tiffany Jackson's second novel, follows best friends Claudia Coleman and Monday Charles. After returning home from a summer with her grandmother, Claudia is excited to reunite with her best friend. Claudia hasn't seen or spoken to Monday all summer. However, Monday doesn't show up on the first day of school. She doesn't show up on the second day, the third day, or any day following. Worried, Claudia questions her own mother and Monday's older sister about her whereabouts. As the days and weeks go by without any sign of Monday, a dark story begins to unfold as we learn about Monday's troubled home life. Claudia is sure something is wrong, but no one else is as concerned about Monday's disappearance as her. Monday's not coming is devastating, yet hard to put down. The author weaves together a tale of friendship, troubled families, mental health, and the value of Black lives. Nick Stone's debut novel, Dear Martin, explores a story we've sadly come to know all too well, police violence in Black communities. When friends, Justice and Manny, find themselves in an altercation with a white off-duty policeman, lives are forever changed. Miss Stone's storytelling is masterful as she explores policing, Black male adolescence, and the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to help us understand a world where racism and police violence go hand in hand. Long Way Down, Jason Reynolds' award-winning novel takes us into the mind of 15-year-old Will. 
as he rides an elevator armed with his brother Sean's gun, contemplating whether or not to exact revenge against the man that killed Sean. Written in verse, this novel takes place over the course of a 60 second elevator ride from the seventh floor. As the elevator makes its way down, stopping on each floor, someone familiar gets on. Will has to reckon with what he learns from each person who joins him on the elevator, ultimately forcing him to decide how he wants his own story to end. Fans of realistic fiction will find these three young adult novels deeply engaging and steeped in everyday truths. For Our Truth Today, I'm Megan Rose. I'll be back next week for another book talk. Sit up straight. Yeah, that's you. That's you. Sit up straight and pay attention. Pay attention. This is Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell, okay? Pay attention. Get your hands out of your pocket. That's it. Sit down. All right. Excellent. Our Truth Today. News. There are concerns that a last-minute addition to Ohio's new state biennial budget could threaten democracy. Governor Mike DeWine signed House Bill 166 on Thursday, which includes a provision to reduce the minimum number of workers at multi-precinct polling locations on Election Day. Mike Brickner, with advocacy group All Voting is Local, contends the need for poll workers is more crucial than ever, as many counties will transition to new voting machines over the next year. It's very frustrating in that we know that this could become a perfect storm for problems at the polls in 2020. The presidential election is going to have a higher turnout than gubernatorial elections, but we even saw in 2018 record turnout. Supporters of reducing the number of poll workers point out that Ohio voters are now allowed to use any line in multi-precinct polling locations, so the process is smoother and fewer poll workers are needed. The measure could bring relief to counties that struggle to attract reliable poll workers, and it could also reduce election day costs. However, Brickner counters there could be a cost for voters who might face longer lines and confusion at the polls. In 2018, there were several counties and polling locations within those counties that had significant issues with machine problems, with people casting provisional ballots that really needed poll workers to help navigate those issues. The minimum required number of poll workers at multi-precinct locations will change from four to two. Brickner says voting rights groups are committed to ensuring voters have the assistance they need. Boards of elections have to approve any poll reductions in their counties. And so voting rights advocates will be monitoring to make sure that we know of any planned poll reductions and push back on any that we feel will lead to voters being disenfranchised. The Senate had already passed a similar measure, and Brickner notes his organization was working with lawmakers to ensure any reduction in poll staffers would not adversely affect voters. He's troubled that this was added to the budget last minute with no opportunity for a hearing. For Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. This story was produced in association with Media in the Public Interest and funded in part by the George Gunn Foundation. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.Net. Well, we're back with Dr. Stephanie McCullough talking about white women, women voters. Melissa Fruxeshart from NYU wrote a piece in the journal Feminist Media Studies in which she highlighted the great divide between progressive white women a la Pantsuit Nation and women of color, pointing out that the Facebook group Pantsuit Nation, which grew to nearly 3 million members in less than a month, dismissed concerns brought up by women of color. One member commented that the posts that get accepted are, quote, white feminists does something to help someone, anything, any decent human being should do or would like to share for maximum applause and fanfare, please. 
uh, while calls for action or anything related to brown issues were seen as divisive. Mm -hmm. So this was in 2016, and I'm a member of Pantsuit Nation also. Um, I don't think much has changed. No. Um, Do you? And then when and and it, it repeated itself in the uh, the viral phenomenon of the Airbnb for the for women regarding the states that were putting the abortion ban, okay. and so those Facebook groups started popping up again, saying essentially. But they appropriated it. We're the underground tunnel for women that need to leave their state to come to our, and, and, you, and we will hook you up with women that have a spare room, that will give you some transportation. But they appropriated all the language and, and all the, <laughs> the symbolism of actual, of the actual underground railroad and the actual suppression. And meantime, in those Facebook groups, when someone would raise their voice and say, because I was one of them, a couple of us jumped in and said, I would like us to not be using these symbols. These aren't our symbols. Uh, these symbols don't have any meaning. In fact, it's a, it's a real repetition of the injury that white feminists keep doing and getting a massive backlash. So half of the women we see, at least based on voting records, half of the women seem to support the other side, I'll say. And <laughs> the other half seems to care. But in that half that cares... <laughs> And then half that cares, there are still half who, who don't care. Who so care what is it about under women? Their conditions, right? Okay. Who care? That's what I want to know. So right? what is it that makes oh. people like you give a shit? Oh. Well, and I've had to have I've had to have it in my face watching a white liberal woman still beat up and go, Oh, wait a minute, I thought it was still under my terms. So yes, white liberal women, I think they love their cookies and they love their prizes and they love their stars and they love their likes, but they haven't necessarily done the work of dismantling what racism is inside them. You can, we'll, let's talk about explicit racism. Sure, that, again, feels like an elective I can take at college and be completely emotionally detached from going, oh, what is this implicit racism I'm carrying around? And I think that, sure, I mean, probably more than half of the progressive women still don't do that work. Yeah. The Nation magazine ran a piece discussing the surge in women running for office after Donald Trump was elected. They say Emily's List, a group that supports pro-choice Democratic candidates, only received about 900 inquiries from women wanting to run for office before Trump was elected, and that that number jumped to 16,000 yep. after the election. Is more white women in power the answer to our problems? No. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't th no, do you, Wait a minute. You said, does more white women in power the answer? Yes. No, I don't think that's the answer. I don't believe that. What's the ideal world? Mm. What's the ideal end point? Can we? I don't know. Can we get there? The ideal well, end We definitely point, can't get there if we don't know where we're going. That's right. <laughs> Equity. Consistency, the absence of hypocrisy, the consistent implementation of the set of laws we put on a piece of paper, independent of what someone's identity is. Do people want to give up their status quo? Do white people want to give up their status quo? No, they're fighting it. My sister and I sometimes say this is the death rattle. This is the death rattle of white, of white people. I want to see uh, Washington, D.C., where the number of white faces is way more proportionate to the number of white people in this country. However, because it has not been proportional for the last 300 years, right. when it becomes proportional, it's, we still won't be equal. That's right. That's right. Because we haven't, we actually have to dismantle it. We actually have to re, we have to build something that wasn't part, that's in the system, that's not in the system now because the system was built by that Western European white male and white supremacy mentality. We absolutely have to dismantle it. I don't think, no, no we're not going to tag on you know there's no slapping some some veneer on this thing when the building's falling down we're in chicago home to ida b wells an activist and one of the founders of the naacp 
I remember hearing a story from her granddaughter about Wells' work with white women activists. There was a march that Ida was going to be allowed as a black woman to participate in, but the organizer said she could only march in the back of the parade. Mm -hmm. So several mm -hmm. women activists said, great, we'll march with you in the back. And when they arrived and the parade started, the white women waited for Wells in the back, and she wasn't there. Turned out she snuck her way into the front of the march. Uh, the reason I bring this up is I'm wondering if that's part of the problem. Do white women accept slow change when others Ooh, want change immediately? Thank you. I love that. Yes. And it's still new to white women to hear that. That is still, it is still new. It's still like a, a new phenomenon. Uh, and I feel like I don't need to tell uh, someone that. I, but I, I know my white friends feel that it's new for them. Of, of, of well, gosh, this, this, this discussion about reparations. Listen, <laughs> this discussion about reparations ain't new. But it is feeling new to a lot of white progressives who feel like they're still here. Let me, let me, let me look through this. Let me, let me dismantle and see. I need to put my own intellect uh, through this math. Oh, you mean there are already extensive books and research? You mean that are by, by authors and scholars and professors? Well, no, 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 no. I, I need to go look. I, I, you know, let's see what USA Today says, <laughs> right? This, it's still a phenomenon to white people. It's still a phenomenon to white people that there's an entire set of academia, culture, invention, uh, sp spirituality, uh, identity components that, don't, that aren't white. Dr. Stephanie McCullough, thanks for joining us today on Our Truth Today. I enjoyed it immensely, so thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Great to have you. That's the end of our show. For Fair and DeBell, I'm Tyra Dion. Join us next week, same time, same day, Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern on your favorite podcast provider or at OurTruth.Today. Catch our upcoming shows on immigration and college. Is it worth it? Opinions expressed are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent Our Truth Today or its hosts, producers, or advertisers. Show ideas are welcome and can be sent to info at OurTruth.Today.